May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You know, I always have these questions sometimes that come up in my mind that keep me up at night. You know, I just can't get them out of my head. And one of those things that I, every now and again, it just really bothers me for usually a week at a time or so is, is the fact that God saves us at all. The fact that God saves us at all. I mean, you know, Christian teaching is that God is so perfect in and of himself that he needs nothing outside of himself. You know, so, so why create us at all? But then once we sinned, us poor little creatures, you know, sinned, he still deigns to save us. And it just really is kind of a mind-boggling thing to me. I mean, it's not his fault that we sinned. You know, it doesn't reflect poorly on him. It reflects poorly on us. It's our fault. Um, and if, we, if he'd ever saved us, you know, who would, who would blame him? But he does because of his great love for us. And I think that this really begins to, to make us aware of the fact that our salvation is a mystery. And in fact, this mystery, and the Latin word for mystery is sacramentum, by the way, is so profound that at times it feels like there are tensions even in the scriptures regarding our salvation. So if you opened your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, you'll see St. Paul say, For by grace ye are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Great. But then you flip a couple books over to the book of James, James chapter 2, verse 24, and you'll see St. James say, Ye see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. So what are we to make of these? Are these two verses in contradiction with each other? And if so, who's right, St. Paul or St. James, and how would we adjudicate that debate? The answer, of course, is that these verses are not in contradiction, that they are both correct because they're both God's word. St. Paul and St. James are both picking up on different facets of this great, grand mystery of salvation and how we as humans participate in it. Now, we might begin by asking, what's the goal of our salvation? And last week, we talked about this. We talked about how our salvation is not just to be saved from something, right? Salvation is not just about fire insurance. It's not just about avoiding hell, though hell is a good thing to avoid. Salvation is also not about nostalgia, It's not about going back to the way things used to be. We're not going back to Eden collectively as humans. Rather, salvation is about our wholeness. It's about becoming who we are supposed to be. It's about living lives that are perpetual acts of worship and adoration to our Lord. And to that end, I think our reading from Genesis 17 speaks quite a bit to this mystery of our salvation. In the chapter, what's going on is that God is reaffirming the promise that he made to Abram in our reading last week, which was Genesis chapter 12. It was the call of Abram and the giving of a promise to him, making of a covenant. And when we look at this reading, I think we see three movements that touch on our salvation. Grace, response, and promise. Grace, response, and promise. So the first movement is grace. And if you've been raised in the church or you've been in the church for any significant amount of time, you know that term grace gets thrown around a lot. We talk about sacraments as the means of grace, for example. We talk about being thankful for God's grace. We sing to him amazing grace. But what does it mean? Grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Thomas Aquinas defines it as a free gift of God that perfects our human nature. A free gift of God that perfects our human nature. 
We need grace. All of us need grace because we're stuck in this spiral away from God that we call original sin. And and that means we're going towards our own self-destruction. And so grace is the thing not only that prevents us from fully self-destructing, but also turns us towards God and pushes us uh, forward as we progress to be like him. And we see this very much in the story of Abram. I mean, think about the call of Abram. Abram did not wake up one day and say, you know, I really need to leave my family and go somewhere else. No, God came to him first. God spoke and told Abram what to do, and Abram did what he was told. Could Abram create a life in his wife Sarai where no life was able to grow? No, it required God's intervention. And so today's reading from Genesis emphasizes that God makes the first, first move on us, that anything good that we do, any movement towards God that we make is always in response to him. It's always because of the grace he gives us. And the nice thing is what the scriptures teach us further is that when God makes a promise, we know that he's powerful enough to accomplish it. How does God introduce himself to Abram this morning in our reading? He calls himself Almighty God, the Hebrew is El Shaddai, which probably means something like God of the mountains, but we do often translate it as God Almighty. Only God was powerful enough to save Noah from the flood. Only God could pull Abram out of the chaos that was, after, that was the Tower of Babel. The human situation isn't something that we can resolve without God. We can't do it on our own power. And so in this sense, St. Paul is absolutely correct to emphasize the need for our salvation through grace and not through works. Now, it's also really important to remember what Paul was writing about when he uses the term works, right? Because he's writing to a church that's racially divided. It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And you have a group of Jews telling Gentiles who are coming into the church, hey, you can be a Christian too. You just also have to become Jewish. Make sure that you follow the dietary laws, circumcision, and the sacrificial system. And so St. Paul is saying, no, you are not saved by works of the law. You don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. The only thing that saves us, according to St. Paul, is the faithfulness of Jesus and our response of faith in Jesus. And so Abram's story is a good reminder for us that El Shaddai, God Almighty, always makes the first move towards us. And it's not because of anything special about us or anything that we've done. It's because of God's great love for us. He loves us into becoming lovable. But this leads us to the second movement in salvation, which is our human response, right? Because salvation by faith is not an excuse not to do, quite the opposite, in fact. What's the first thing God tells Abraham in our reading this morning? Walk before me and be thou perfect. Easy enough. Interestingly, the Abraham story is exactly what St. James appeals to to support his vision of the active Christian life, to support his argument that Abraham was justified by works in addition to his faith. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar, seest, how thou, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? Now, we often think of perfection as the lack of error, and that's certainly part of it. But I also think here that perfection, especially in terms of, of Abraham's call, is to possess a positive wholeness. It's not just to not have anything deficient. It's, it's really about the fullness, the wholeness 
When each one of us is baptized, the seeds of faith and hope and love are planted in each of us by God's grace. That's his first movement on the baptized soul is to give us those great gifts. But they grow in us when we water them and cultivate them by what we do. When we live lives of prayer and worship, when we come and receive the sacraments, when we do good works. And so salvation requires a response from us, and this is the facet that St. James focuses on. Now, the third and final movement in the reading is what I call promise. This passage from Genesis 17 is really a reaffirmation of the promise that God made to Abraham in chapter 12. And it's important to remember what goes on in between God's initial promise and this reaffirmation. Well, you have the Hagar and Ishmael story, right? Uh, Sarah gives Hagar, her maidservant, to Abraham thinking this will be the way that God fulfills his covenant by having children through the maidservant. Of course, this was not God's intention. And so, um, so it's possible that by the time we get to Genesis 17, Abraham thinks that God's promise has been answered in Ishmael, that, that we're all good, that God has done what he said he'd do, and that chapter is closed, but it's not. And so God has to come to him and say, hey, this promise is still yet to be fulfilled. He gives him the promise again. He promises to make him a great nation. He promises to give him land. But there are a few additional aspects to this promise God has to kind of renew the promise, and he, he adds some things to it. For example, we see the new name. You may have caught this. Abram becomes Abraham. Exalted father, Abram, that's what that means, becomes Abraham, father of many nations. Initially, he was, it was only one nation. You will become a great nation, is Genesis 12. Now Abraham's going to be the father of many nations because of the Hagar and Ishmael story in addition to his children through Sarah. God has given Abraham a new identity. Further, God adds a promise that the king shall come out of thee. This connects Abraham to King David and the covenant God makes with David in 2 Samuel 7. But more importantly, it's another way to connect Abraham to Jesus, who is the true king. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant says that there will be a a descendant of David always on the throne. And of course, you look around today and there is no descendant of David on the throne, except that Jesus is a descendant of David who sits on a heavenly throne. Finally, God informs Abraham of the eternality of the covenant that he's making with him. In verse 7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee and their generations for an everlasting covenant. Note how God's actions here bookend human action. God moves, we respond, God urges us forward by reminding us of his promises. Very much a mirror of the Christian life. God moves at our baptism. We respond by good works, by lives of prayer, by doing, following God's commands. And then there's this idea of promise. This is exactly what we're about, about to enact, right? What's the promise that's made to you at your baptism? That you're, that you're sealed by the Holy Ghost and you're marked as Christ's own forever. And what are we about to do? You're about to come forward where you'll receive the body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and be given a window into that great wedding supper of the Lamb from Revelation that we all are looking forward to. It's a reminder of the promise that he's made to each and every one of us. And that's what keeps us going. Just like this reaffirmation of promise keeps Abraham going, keeps him journeying, keeps him progressing. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, St. Paul lists three virtues. We call these virtues the theological virtues. He says, now abideth faith, hope, and charity, or love. 
And these virtues really distill the essence of salvation. Faith is that trust that we have when God makes the first move toward us. Love is what motivates us to respond to God's command with our obedience. And we have hope as we anticipate God delivering on those promises that he gives us. Salvation, I think, is a mystery that none of us will ever be able to fully figure out or wrap our minds around. That God saves us at all because of his great love for us is a mind-boggling realization. But in the face of such a great mystery, Abraham provides for us a blueprint. When God gives you a promise, like the one that he made to you at your baptism, it's best to believe him. It's best to cling to that promise in faith. Even more, you should live your life in light of that promise. St. John tells us we love him because he first loved us. And it's important to remember what Jesus says, that if you love me, keep my commandments. But as we progress, we hope, we watch, we wait for God to be faithful to his promises, and we know he will be just like he was faithful to Abraham. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Amen.